This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be happy. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. So this teaching meaning, if we truly didn't have any hatred in our hearts, we would be in anagami. We would be the, we would not be reborn in the human realm anymore. So, um, metta is an important quality of the heart. So, usually we have a thing, various protections. So we have a meditation object. But metta is something like whenever we're around other people. For example, if we've got to do duties, like in a monastery, Often the monks come together to do duties, so that's the time to develop metta. That's the time when you're going to strike against people sometimes. And so we always have this opportunity to give up our ill will, to renounce our ill will, and, and to have a benevolent heart. Because even the ants, you know, when an ant bites us, instead of getting angry, we can send a metta. You don't have to react in a negative way. And so when we train the mind to always be benevolent, and it's it's a good sign that we're, we're not following this old habit. And then death, we, we can contemplate death regularly as a means to bring up a sense of urgency in the practice. 
death is the supreme meditation object because if we contemplate that we'll die at the end of the in-breath or we may die at the end of the out-breath, there's a lot of truth in that. Life isn't promised to anybody. And whatever problems we may have, if we contemplate in this way, suddenly the problems are going to disappear because they don't really matter. They're not as, as sticky or as important as we think they are if death is on the table. And, and then we have like the Buddha, so the Buddha Nisati, recollection of the qualities of the Buddha. That's because the, the Buddha is the supreme being. So to become a Buddha is the difficult path. So where we have the opportunity to have these teachings because a Buddha has arisen in the world. And that story of the blind turtle or tortoise, whichever one it was, once every hundred years, pokes its head up to the surface of the ocean, what are the odds of putting its head through a yoke floating on the surface of that ocean? You know, it's, the ocean's like 70% of the earth, and it's blind. So, and it just does that once every hundred years. And so what are the odds of it poking its head through that yoke? And the Buddha used that simile twice. Once, he said that's how difficult it is to get out of the animal realm because it's really hard to make, for example, maybe if you were a, a noble horse and you died for your master, that would be enough to go to heaven. You know, but just think of all the animals and insects. It's very hard to make good karma in that realm. And so it's very hard to get out of that realm. And also you attach to the form that you have. So if you're born a kangaroo, you probably want to be a kangaroo again in your next life. Now you don't want to be a human. <laughs> and so it's just hard. But the Buddha also used that simile for how rare it is as a human being to come in contact with the Dhamma. Because the, the true Dhamma is the teachings of a Buddha. Because a Buddha is one who is awake. So one who is woken up of the dream, out of the dream of existence, of birth and suffering and old age and death and found an end to it all. And, and so they practice through countless lifetimes to become a Buddha. So it said four asankayas and a hundred thousand kalpas ago. An asankaya is an immeasurable period, and a kalpa is a universe cycle. And it's like the simile for a universe is if you've got a, a silk cloth, and once every hundred years you stroke this massive piece of stone which was miles long and deep, maybe two miles long and two miles deep, and you stroke it with a silk cloth. You come back and did that again and a hundred years later. Sooner would that rock disappear than would an aeon pass. So even our science, we say billions of years, but clearly in Buddhism, the universe cycle is much longer than that because there's a the period of expansion and contraction of a universe, the formation period. So and this that's just one kalpa. And so maybe a so a hundred thousand of those and then four asankayas and maybe an asankaya is maybe a million kalpas or even more than that. Who knows how long the asankaya is? It's just called an immeasurable period. And so that's how long, from when the Buddha determined to be a Buddha in his mind in the presence of another Buddha, which is how you start your journey as a Buddha. So how long it took to even to do that determination, all the way up to the present, two and a half thousand years ago when, when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. And so Buddhas are peerless beings in that they've used their good karma to perfect their character. I think it says in the commentaries, the ten paramis are times three. So there's three levels to the spiritual perfections. And the Buddha is the only being who has totally perfected themselves. So they've gone beyond character. So they, they are like living embodiment of the perfect Dharma. There's nothing that they say, do or think from the moment they become a Buddha to the moment they die that is not in line with Dharma. 
and, and the Buddha, amazing things like he, the Buddha was aware of breath and death in every moment. So every, every single breath, the Buddha was contemplating death for his whole life as a Buddha. That's how, it was the supreme mindfulness of a Buddha. So, so these are not ordinary beings, they're not comparable to other beings. And so the contemplation of the Buddha's qualities is a source, it's like a, a banner that we hold up. It's, it's a sign that we hold up in our heart to point us in the right direction. Because these are qualities that bring up inspiration. So this is, the death is, brings up some vaga, spiritual urgency. The recollection of the Buddha brings up inspiration. That, you know, we're not lost in samsara because we have access to a teaching now. So, and, and so, in relation to that story, what the Buddha meant, was saying is that how rare it is as, as a human to come in contact with the Dhamma. How rare it is. And it's like this simile that the Buddha gave of the blind turtle. That's how rare rare it is, once every hundred years poking its head up, putting it through that yoke. So we put our head through that yoke, we've done the impossible, we've come into contact and heard the Dharma as a human being. And then so we, now we see, well, what are we doing with that? You know, where, 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 how much are we going to make use of this rare opportunity we have? And And then the other defilements, we just have to look into our own minds. So generosity, the Buddha always teaches generosity, so much so that he said with every morsel of food, you know, every time that we eat, we should be thinking of giving. And not just to give, but to also reflect on giving. So, so we have this chaganusati, this recollection of our actions when we have given in the past, and this, this becomes a source of happiness for us. Not only encouraging us to give further in the future, but here and now we can experience the happiness of those actions that we've done. And, and so we have generosity as well. Uh, and, but when we're coming to develop here, develop meditation, it's because we need a peaceful mind. So once we have some faith and inspiration, and, and, you know, we see that it's not a game to develop the mind, that it's something serious. But then we take up the practice of actually developing meditation, of developing the mind. Because we can do, develop good qualities, we can watch the mind all day long, but without peace, it's very hard to ever develop the mind that's strong enough to actually get to the defilements, to actually cut away at wrong views and misconceptions. And so this is why we need samadhi. And how do we develop samadhi? By developing a peaceful mind, by developing a foundation of peace, by establishing ourselves in mindfulness and peace. And so this is the work that we yoke ourselves to. This is our daily practice from when we wake up in the morning to when we go to sleep at night. We, we try and have periods of time where we know that we're being mindful, or we know that this is a time for meditation, and so we have formal practice, whether it's standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Like uh, Ajahn Lee said, you know, we find what suits our temperament, and and then we stick to it, and, and we become regular in that, because it's not. It's like those dominoes lining up. That simile I've said in the past. We need the one domino hits on another domino, hits on another domino, and, and by exponential force within 30 or so dominoes, you can knock over the moon. And it just starts from one tiny little domino. So that's the exponential force with gravity. Or, or look at an ant. You know the old proverb of, in Thailand, be as diligent as an ant. And, and you see when the a healthy ant that is, not a lazy ant, when the ant grabs the grain of sand, it would put it just at the point so it will roll. Now it doesn't walk it all the way to the ground, 
puts it at the right place. So it uses gravity to help it. It's not, it doesn't overwork and it doesn't underwork. If we put it before the place where the grain of sand would roll away from the edge of its nest, then it will create more work for another ant. Meaning that we, we have to know what the right measure is in things. We, know, we have to know how to do things properly. And so this is where we, we have a, a means of meditation that we train in. In the Thai tradition, they usually teach Buddha, because Buddha is the one who knows. Buddha is the one who observes. And so we have this mantra Buddha, and we can use it as our formal meditation object. And outside of our meditation, when we're not meditating, we can also be developing mindfulness. Because when we have mindfulness, at that time we're not proliferating. At that time we're not getting involved with unnecessary problems and difficulties. Because how much of our uh, difficulties are just caused by proliferation? They're just monkey, the monkey mind, that's all. And, and so we have to see that our family and friends, our bosses, our work, the politicians, we're all going to die. All these stories that we're attaching to, they're just like a puppet show. So when are we going to cut the strings and, and actually focus on the things that are really important? It doesn't mean we shouldn't work in the world. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do these things. The Buddha said, yes, work by the sweat of your brow. You know, working hard is good, but the purpose of working hard is so beings can support the fourfold Sangha because they're gifts that are worthy of giving. In a previous life, the Bodhisattva, he had all these gifts to give and nobody to give it to. I think Stephen was sharing that teaching with me. And, and so giving is, is the first level. And, and the great disciples of the Buddha, even some who were attained, you know, they were totally focused on giving. So giving is not a small thing because we can't take the physical with us when we die. So, you know, if we work, then learning to give is a form of renunciation. It's a form of giving up. Because if, if we can't give of material things, then how are we going to give up of our defilements? And also the happiness that comes from giving, you know, reflecting on these things is immense. I remember when I first went into the monastery because I had done a year of giving, it made it a lot easier for me to, to practice. Because in my spare time, I used to go to monasteries and volunteer and, and, and buy things for the monks and so forth. And, and, and so a lot of my spare time was focused on giving. So by the time I started meditating, I was just having a lot of joy arise. Just I do walking meditation and just bliss would arise. And so that was the result of all of that giving. That it was just coming up and, and maybe past practice. But the, the idea is, is if, if we have virtue and generosity, then we already have samadhi there. You know, if we truly, and Lumpur was saying something like, I can't remember exactly, but it's like a monkey who has glass or a chicken who has diamonds. You know, they don't know what they have. Meaning that if, if we have this generosity, if we have these precepts and things, we need to actually appreciate them. We need to reflect on them. We need to make much of them. Because otherwise we're just like a monkey with glass or a chicken with diamond. It doesn't know what it's got. It doesn't value what it has. And so we have this... Uh, ability to not only practice, but to see the worth of the things that we have in our heart. And whether we practice a little or a lot, you know, whether we're feeling energetic or lazy, whatever the, whether it's early or late, whether it's hot or cold, whether we're full or hungry, we just keep the practice so it's in the middle. You know, so we, we have a standard that we live by and we try and hold ourselves to that. And, and then we know that when conditions arise and sometimes things don't happen exactly 
as we wish them to, then, then we have the thought, you know, when am I going to sit? When am I going to walk? When am I going to chant? When am I going to give sangadana? Or whatever our practice is. So we have this, this is more important than the things that may get in the way or life. So that means that if we are ever to die, what has been our most important thoughts? You know? Because if we don't ever contemplate death, if we don't ever contemplate good things, when we die, what are we going to think? What's going to be the first thing that comes to our mind? Just our same habits of thinking that have always occurred. Probably now worse, because now, now we've got to sort out that we don't have a body and we've got all these attachments. Now we've got to work out what to do with them. And, and so by living in a good way, then when we die, we can just let go, because we know we've lived our life to the best that we could. And, and even if we made mistakes, it's okay, because we were trying, and we were growing, and we were doing our best. And because death, Agvampote said, death isn't going to be as easy as we think it is. No, it's going to be difficult. It's not an easy thing. Even, even the elderly are attached, more attached than they realize, you know. And this attachment has gone on. The, the Buddha said the beginning of samsara is undetectable. As far back as you go, there's just more birth, old age, sickness and death. It's just the changing conditions of karma. So if we've created these attachments for countless lifetimes, they're not going to be easy to let go of. So this is where we use our meditation to develop the peace, or the recollection of the Buddha to develop the inspiration, or the death to bring up the sense of urgency, or whatever it is that we're cultivating. So we have the sense of bhavana, we have the sense of cultivating our mind, and then we can become skillful in these things. So then, even in like a good time to meditate is early in the morning or late in the evening, because that's usually when the world is quiet. And because it's quiet outside, it's easier to be quiet inside. So maybe people don't have a forest to go to, but choosing a time of day where it's quiet makes it easier for the mind to settle down. And then what's useful about having the same time that we practice each day means it gives the mind an opportunity to know that that's a time for practice, that's a time for meditation. And then it will get easier at that time things go on. So we'll start with the meditation. <clears throat> we start by coming into the present. Relaxing the physical body. On the top of the head, face, neck, ears, lips, the eyes all of the face, the head, neck, the shoulders, the upper arms, elbows, lower arms, wrists, hands, fingertips, upper part of the torso, chest, the lungs, the inwind, filling up the lungs, the outwind, emptying from the lungs. The breathing is going on. Relax the heart, upper torso, the middle torso, solar plexus and diaphragm, lower torso, belly, lower back. Centering the spine, the 
eyes, upper thighs, the knees, the thighs, the knees, the lower legs, the ankles, the feet, the whole physical body. It's like it's a lump of clay, it's a lump of soil. Just relax the physical body. Bring a sense of tranquility, calmness, serenity. Calming down, cooling off. Tranquil body. sensations, feelings arise in the body, just hold them with this tranquility. Dissolving into tranquility. mindful of things as they actually are. Now is the time for practice. Death may come at the end of an in-breath. Death may come at the end of an out-breath. We have this opportunity to be tranquil and give up the world. This island of the heart. Secluded from sight, sound, smells, taste, touch and thoughts of worldliness. Just let them all dissolve the bubbles that pop. Puppet shows cut the strings, whatever it is. Just don't get involved with it. Tranquil body. arises in the body, just hold it with tranquility. Also the eyes, the eyes become tranquil, the whole body become tranquil. The heart becomes still. There's a need to 
be agitated and restless. Becoming more and more still, giving up this all these exit doors that go out into the world, to give them all up. Now's the time for you to have a meditation theme to bring it up. As you wish, just be with Bud with the in-breath, Do with the out-breath, Bud, Do, the nostrils of the upper lip, roof of the mouth, the heart or the abdomen. Just choose a place where the mind, like a bird snug in the nest, is comfortable. Tranquilizing the in-wind, tranquilizing the out-wind, letting everything else vanish.
So gratitude to ourselves for the willingness to practice, taking the time. So it's metta to ourselves and all beings. And understanding that death may come at any time. We take the time to do the things that are important. And hold everything else with a grain of salt. Ultimately, things are like sand in the desert, but sand-like passing through the hands. It's just sand of the desert, just change. And use the peace as a foundation in our heart to keep ourselves focused in the right direction. When there's peace, and there's joy and delight there. When there's joy and delight in the heart, it's easy to meditate. In your own time, be in the meditation. Those who wish, just stay with the meditation object. It's just enough time for a, any, a question or two if anybody has one. Interesting, the first four stages of Anapanasati, the mindfulness of the in-breath, mindfulness of the out-breath. And that's, that's mindfulness of the body. So the Buddha said, mindfulness of the body is supreme. So that first foundation of mindfulness, that's actually enough to develop the four jhanas. So, you know, uh, the strength of mind, the strength of peace, the calmness that we attain. Now this is really the important thing, because when we're calm inside, we become like an unshakable mountain. The rain may pour, storms may rage, and the mountain's unmoved. So when we have peace, you know, even death comes, or buildings burn down, or floods occur or whatever it is, if we have peace in our heart, then we just accept this is just nature arising, altering, persisting and ceasing, that's all. So we don't have to be upset by the world. And so this is the this is the fruit of the practice. And when we contemplate old age, sickness, death, when we contemplate karma, the results of action, when we look into all these things, it means that we're close to the Dhamma. The only way we can keep our mind on these things is if we're interested. The only way we can sustain our interest is if we have some peace. So however we get our peace, whether we need to contemplate to get our peace, or whether we just focus on mindfulness as supreme all the time, or we focus on the Buddha, or However it is that gets us to practice, it gets us to develop mindfulness, it gets us to sustain a peaceful heart. And it can be said that that's right for us. And the simpler the better. That's why in Thailand they just say Buddha. The meaning of Buddha is because it's hard to meditate. Before you can meditate you need mindfulness. 
And so in daily life, and when, you, when we wake up in the morning to when we go to sleep at night, every time there's an in-breath and out-breath, every moment we have, that can be a moment we can develop our meditation object. But, because otherwise, usually to begin with, we just develop it for a little bit and then the mind falls off again. We develop it for a little bit and the mind falls off again. So, so we have to see the danger of proliferation. We have to see the danger of not having mindfulness. It's like a, it's like a mother or a nurse looking after a child. They have to be vigilant all the time, otherwise the child might choke on something, might die because of that negligence. And this is like our mindfulness. It's not easy to maintain balance. It's not easy to sustain mindfulness, to sustain peace. And so we may need to set up formal periods of practice as a way of teaching us what meditation is. And that's the standard. And then beyond that, then, you know, when we're doing chores and menial tasks throughout the day, we don't have to proliferate. You know, proliferation doesn't lead to anything useful. So we can just put down the proliferation and, and try and develop the meditation or the mindfulness in a way that is natural. So we're just observing things as they are. That's why the foundation of mindfulness is supreme, is that these are coarse things, whether we contemplate them as elements or body parts or the breath or whatever it is. Like a friend of mine who's a layman I know who practices a lot of breath meditation, he knows how to regulate the breath. So if he's mowing the lawn or something, he does it in a very gentle way, so his attention's more on focusing the lawn. But he's still there with his breath. You know, the breath is never far away from him, from when he wakes up in the morning to when he goes to sleep at night. And so that's the kind of mindfulness that the mind gets really, starts to get really powerful because it doesn't want to proliferate. It doesn't want to get involved with worldly things. It's, it's found something better. It's found a, a true home, a home of peace. And that's the kind of heart that's actually capable of uprooting defilement, capable of seeing the Dhamma, capable of having unshakable faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, seeing into the training. And and what what are we the difficulty is is that we have to see the danger of sense pleasures. We have to see the danger of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought. And no matter how much we get involved with these things, the form and bodies and sense pleasures, that's all they are. They're transient. So they're like a snake. You grab the snake from the tail and it'll bite you. You grab the snake from the head and it'll bite you. So whether it's happiness or suffering, it's biting us anyway. So it doesn't mean that we can't make use of things in the world, but we have to see them as they are, because if we just think that everything is happiness all the time, then when we die, we're going to suffer for that happiness. Because then now we can't experience those things anymore. And, and it's like an elderly person who, who spent their life chasing after sense pleasures. If they end up bedridden in bed, they're going to suffer a lot because now they can't go and do those things that used to make them happy. And so this is the danger of these bodies. This is the danger of these things. But if we don't contemplate that, then we're just in this bubble where we're just chasing after happiness. We don't see that there is any potential suffering and, and, and we just go through life as if nothing really matters. And then when suffering bites us, then we really cry. <laughs> it's a lot of suffering. But all the while it had been right there for us to see, and all, all the time. And, and that's it's like people who go to hell. When they go to hell, Yama asks them, well, didn't you see old age? Didn't you see sickness? Didn't you see death? meaning that our life is constantly teaching us. So the results of our actions, we're, we're responsible for them. Nobody else is responsible for our actions, body, speech and mind. But to the level of intention that we have, to the level of purpose we have, that's up to us personally. You know, how we want to grow as a being, what it is our aspirations are. But without this foundation of peace, then it's hard to make mindfulness supreme.
Chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss, and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled. Yata varivaha pura pariparanti sagarang evang evaito dinang petanang upakapati chitang patitang tunghang kipamewa samijitu sabe parentu sangapa chandu panara soyata manijotira soyata Samitiyo vivajantu sabaru koyena chattu mate pavantvantarayo sukhiti kayo kopavahapiva tanasili sanichang uttapachayeno chattaro 